unfortunately, if you have a really compelling company, you can end up in a place in an accelerator like YC or Techstars and not be in the right stage to do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Decipher Health Tech, a podcast where we delve into the convergence of healthcare, technology, and business. I'm Haider. I'm Mohammed. Today, we got a great episode with for you with uh, Danish Nangda. He's an ENT, uh, CEO and founder of Resilient. <laughs> and uh, Wharton and McKinsey alum. So we get into some really great conversation. Hey everyone, we're uh, gonna be interviewing Danish Nanda here. He's a ENT, CEO and founder of Resilient, um, an all around great guy. So he's had experience, he's built a company, exited it. I think you were in college when you did that. And then um, now he's in, in the health tech space and telehealth space remote care delivery space. So um, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your your background, and then we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, uh, Danish Nagda, founder and CEO Resilient. I've, uh, I'm a physician by training. I train at Penn and WashU. Uh, I am a serial entrepreneur, uh, built a company, exited, and then in, invested in a company which also exited. So, you know, been very fortunate to do this. And that's an important lesson sort of, that you you, you kind of people don't talk about it, but um, it, it's a large part of the founder journey. As you're going through your job, your role as a founder, you often will come across opportunities. Um, and then uh, you know, was a caregiver for my dad. Uh, you know, my dad sort of inspired, resilient. Uh, he was a good man. Uh, never drank, never smoked, never did drugs. Uh, tried to take care of himself. He had access to health uh, insurance but not good healthcare. Ultimately, my dad, because of something completely preventable, had his first heart attack at 53 um, and became bedbound at 60 from heart failure. And uh, ultimately, I was his caregiver for the last uh, nine years of his life. And then he passed at the age of 69 in November of 2021 on Thanksgiving Day, actually. And um, it's uh, it, it's it was that experience of being both a doctor and a caregiver that inspired me to build Resilient. What we do at Resilient is we combine the best of virtual care with in-person care, what's traditionally called hybrid care. The problem with hybrid care is that when you look at all the companies that have built in hybrid care, uh, you know, companies like Oak Street and Chen Med and One Medical, none of them are truly scalable. When you look at telehealth, it's incredibly scalable, right? You, like you can build and you can distribute using the internet at, at an incredible pace. Um, you can enter all 50 states in, in a month, right? Something crazy. Uh, it, with uh, in-person care, it's not as easy to figure out distribution. And so it's not as scalable. Well, Resilient makes hybrid care scalable. With Resilient, whether you are seeing your doctor at home or at any of our physical brick and mortar cloud clinics, the doctor's actually on the screen. And all in our clinics, the doctor has access to all of these tools remotely. So there's a person there, we call them a presenter. They're the hands of the doctor remotely. They literally grab an otoscope and they put it in the patient's ear and then their eardrum is streaming through resilient to the doctor remotely. And we don't just do ear exams and heart exams and lung exams. We do everything from dermoscopies uh, and and uh, uh, and uh, ultrasounds. We're doing multi-specialty care. So today, uh, Resilient works directly with health plans. And so we work with employers and insurers and we help them reduce total cost of care. Yeah, I think um, before we get too deep into the conversation here, I remember a little while ago, we talked about Innovation Stack by, by Jim McKelvey, and you talked about that perfect problem. So yeah. um, what's resilience perfect problem? Yeah, you know, for us, when we found the perfect problem, so just to kind of get give some context, Jim McKelvey wrote a book called The Innovation Stack, um, and he talks about the perfect problem that underlies every startup. The perfect problem is a problem that has two main features. Feature number one, everybody agrees that it's a problem. And feature number two, it's actually solvable. I'll give you examples of, of things that seem like they're perfect problems, but they're not. Cancer. 
it's the per it, it seems like the perfect problem, but it doesn't meet criteria number two, right? Of course, everybody agrees cancer sucks, but we don't have a cure to cancer, not all cancers. And so the point is that, but there are problems out there that if you can identify them, they're the perfect problem. For resilient, the perfect problem has always come down to you can't deliver all of healthcare over the internet today. And if we could, it solves all these problems. Now, one thing that Jim McKelvey also talks about, and this is like the more important part, is that's great, man. You figured out the perfect problem. Good for you. And let's say you even solved that problem. The issue is you end up creating 10 new problems. And as you solve those 10 new problems, you create 100 new problems. And as you solve those 100 new problems, you create 1,000 new problems. And, you know, and so on and so forth. And as you build the interlinked solutions from the first problem to the 10 problems to the 100 problems, that interlinked solution is actually the thing that is your moat. So too many VCs, too many investors ask you about moats. And as the founder, you've got to just be like, dude, like build something, uh, you know, uh, because uh, ultimately it's all those interlinked solutions that build the real moat. That's the real moat for your business. And that what he calls that moat is innovation stack, all those interlinked solutions. So as we solve that problem, like, OK, if I can do everything I would do in person, but remotely, what happens? Well, how do you do that? Well, you got to get all these devices connected. Okay, great. We got these devices connected. How do you stream it in real time? How, mm -hmm. Even in the operating room, we have delays. Like when we're, when we're working with the scope, sometimes you can get a delay, like a 200 millisecond delay, and you notice it. It shows up. There can be jitter. Right. There can be all of these other issues that, by the way, nobody talks about when you're building this. So what we did was is we literally hardwired the devices. Right. Right. That's a moat. Imagine how long that would take somebody. Right. Uh, and so we, we, we worked directly with the OEMs. We hardwired the devices. We had them streaming through resilient and we figured out many, many techniques in the back end to actually deliver a very low latency and with very little jitter, because even a little bit of jitter can can make somebody have to do a physical exam longer. And and it's uncomfortable for the patient and others. Another thing that we realized is that what is going to what is going to happen? Somebody's putting in the ear and is streaming to the doctor remotely, and the patient's just like sitting there waiting. It's very very awkward. It's super quiet. It's one thing when the doctor's right next to you, uh, but it's another when the doctor's on the screen. So we said, well, what if we show the patient what the doctor's seeing? Like, what if you could see your own eardrum live? Right now, that sounds like a great solution. But now we created ten new problems. Well, the patient's going to be like, what is that? And the doctor's like, what is what? <laughs> right? How do they communicate what's going on? How does the doctor annotate for the patient remotely? So the, to, not to belabor the point, but everybody always thinks that they're going to have this beautiful idea. They're going to patent the idea. And then once they patent the idea, they're going to, you know, go and uh, make a billion dollars and, you know, finding the perfect problem, coming up with a good solution to that problem is step one. That's when it begins. Right. Uh, you know, so, uh, it's just the start. So you clearly believe that this problem that you picked was solvable. Did you have any pushback early on from maybe even from people that you respected saying, I don't know if you can actually accomplish this? And like, how did you work through that in the early stages? Everybody thought it was crazy. But the, the problem, the, the, the problem itself was so compelling like I'll give you so the way to think about whether your problem is compelling. One of the good tests of it is to think in extremes. All right. So what you say is, OK, imagine today if every doctor's office was a cloud clinic. So that means that no matter which doctor's office you went to, every doctor in America was available there or every doctor in the world was available at every location. Is that a world where is that a world that is worth building? And what does that world lead to, right? Um, I think about my dad, and one of the craziest things for my dad was he went in every year, and they'd be like, "Muhammad, you know, you look great. Uh, we'll see you next year." And you know, he was like, "Oh, great! I want to see my doctor." He said I was great. Now the doctor barely talked to him, like three minutes, like every other primary care doctor. Never asked him. Never asked my mom, who would accompany him often, often to appointments. Never asked about, "Hey." Uh, 
you know, tell me a little bit about his sleep. Because had, had they asked that one question, my mom would have been like, well, I don't really know because I kick him out of the bedroom every night because he snores like crazy. And the doctor would be like, oh, interesting. Because my dad had all of this happen to him because he had undiagnosed sleep apnea. That's it. A CPAP would have saved him. It's crazy. Right. Right. All these doctors are taking care of all of these patients and there's no system kind of pinging them and saying, hey, how do I don't forget to ask about this or don't do that or or hey, in this physical exam, the dude's tonsils are huge. Maybe you should ask about sleep. I mean, we don't have any true uh, sort of co-pilot for medicine. And so one the first step to that is digitizing the doctor patient interaction. So when I first started, I actually was focused on that part. And I realized the, the, the pushback I got was, yeah, you can build a co-pilot, right? I wanted to solve my dad's problem, right? Like you can build a co-pilot, but the problem is one, how are you gonna convince a health system to do this, right? And two, how are you gonna get a camera in the room? They were like, no way, no doctor's gonna let you put a camera in the room. But if the doctor's using your system, to do this, now you are the infrastructure. They have no choice but to have a camera in the room. And so that was sort of the, I got a ton of negative feedback. Like people thought I was nuts. And then the pandemic happened and now I look like a genius. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> interesting. So I have a, I have a friend who's something. kind of working in the, uh, the ergonomic space, right? So they're, they're using live video footage intra-procedurally to calculate like, ergonomic scores and give feedback in real time to prevent repetitive stress injuries in physicians, et cetera, surgeons mainly. Um, and he thought the same thing at the beginning, right? He was like, it's going to be impossible to convince hospitals to let me put cameras in the ORs. And he found that was like the easy part, right? Like people, they're fine with cameras in the ORs, what they're, what the hard part is convincing the health system to buy this, right? But you, you took an interesting approach, right? So you're, your product is delivering care at the patient level or to the patient, but you're, you're marketing to employers, right? Or insurers, right? As opposed to going through health systems. So how has uh, that journey been? And how did you come to deciding that was going to be your target market was the employers and insurers? Real talk, went to health systems, talked to Mercy, talked to Barnes. I'm going to out them. I talked to all of these different health systems. And I said, you know, what would really help? Imagine you could have all your clinics have all your doctors. So patients that live in one part of the city don't have to travel across the city to see the ortho. or don't have to travel across the city to see uh, the city to see the GI or the ENT. And you could have all your doctors at every location. Imagine a world like that. And they said, that sounds like an awesome world. You should go build it. Uh, and uh, they couldn't, you know, it's the same problem that all of these companies face, which is they have a model, they believe their model is sticky, they don't need anything else. These non-for-profit health systems don't need to be better, right? There's no incentive for them to be better, well, at that time, right? right. The game is changing quickly. <laughs> Right. Uh, and just like Sears, just like these big, big box retailers, they're getting kind of stuck because they're they're what made them big before, which was consolidation, has made them heavy now. Right. And they're really you're seeing losses really take place. They're you know, they're going to have to cut staff. They're going to have to cut salaries. It's like getting harder. And then it's going to lead to a bunch of people leaving. Um, and they're having shortages. They're like all of these things, by the way, if you go back and you think about what happened to Sears and Kmart, these same things were happening to them too. We're sort of seeing the early and they don't have, uh, margins. They don't have good margins. So they're gonna, they're gonna be in trouble. And so we went to them, we tried to pitch this to them again before the pandemic and people were like, Donish, like, I, you know, you know, uh, I can't get my doctors to FaceTime patients. You're telling me they're going to be doing this through physical clinics and they're going to be doing full exams and no way no way and um and so you know i it, it was very discouraging i remember being sort of questioning whether what i was doing was correct or not and one day i was like well all these doctors are doing telehealth why can't why can't they just do this for me why can't i be the teledoc of clinics right and um, I said, you know what, we'll start small. We'll just do a few patients. We'll see if people like it. And, you know, today we've seen thousands of patients across tens of employers. And, 
you know, our net promoter score, which is a score of experience. Um, for context, uh, one of my old employers, their net promoter score is 38. Okay. And that's not bad for a health system. Um, resilience is 92. Nice. And so when we started testing, we started noticing that nobody trusts doctors anymore. That's a true statement. Uh, and people want transparency. When a doctor looks in your ear, you have no idea what they're seeing. When a doctor looks into your heart, you have no idea what they're hearing. What if you could see and hear everything they see and hear, and they had to explain it to you? They had to tell you what the hell is going on. Uh, people know more about their cars than they know about their bodies. And so, you know, we had this opportunity to really, really showcase the patient to themselves. You know, uh, I have to say, um, in healthcare, there's been this false narrative around accountability. My dad didn't know what the hell was going on. We're expecting him to be accountable for his healthcare decisions when he literally had no idea what was going on. You know, um, uh, I'll, I'll tell a quick story and then uh, we can we can move to the next question. But my dad uh, was really notoriously bad about taking his medicine, like many immigrants. I mean, it's like not an unheard thing, right? Uh, or many doctors. Or many doctors. That's true. And uh, you know, my dad. Uh, he was on this medication that you take three times a day for your heart. And uh, again, very well known that people end up missing a dose every day. It's like very well known for this drug. My dad's heart failure doctor, who was actually one of my mentors at WashU, uh, when I first started, he was just like as a clinician, he was a mentor. And he got so frustrated with my dad. He was like, Mohammed, you gotta stop. What are you doing? And my dad was like, well, and by the way, at this time, my dad was essentially retired, you know, not not super busy. And he was like, well, you know, it's just hard in the middle of the day to keep track. You know, I'm doing this or that. And he's like, OK. And he took the stethoscope from his ears and put it in my dad's ears. And he was like, hey, you hear you hear that? And my dad's like, yeah, he's like, you hear the lub and the dub? You hear the swishing sound in between? Every time that's happening, the, the blood is rushing into your lungs and it's hurting your lungs. You're not gonna be able to pick up your grandkids in six months. My dad never missed a med after that. I've never seen my dad be so compliant ever after that. And I remember calling my co-founder and being like, dude, this is what we need to build. Like that's all people need is to know, that's it. And that was sort of the aha moment. Yeah, so um, speaking of co-founders, what's your, you, you guys are in kind of, an interesting space in, in health tech in which you guys have physical locations, you guys have a device, well, it's not really a medical device, so to speak, but you do have a device in the clinic or a computer system in the clinic. Um, and then you have the digital side of things, the app or whatnot. Um, so what does a, what does an ideal founding team look like to you? Or what do you think every, every founder needs to make sure their startup succeeds? So, you know, they, there's, there is some dogma around this, but they, they, um, they say that you need a hacker, a hipster and a hustler. You might have heard that before. It's a, uh, it's decently apt, uh, but you have to cover all three, somebody that uh, what, what they're really trying to hack or put together. Sorry, I can't use hack in the explanation, but it's somebody who can just build Jeff just builds. He doesn't ask questions. He just builds. He doesn't make excuses, no bullshit. He just builds. Like he literally, Muhammad, he literally built the stuff that you've seen right. himself, uh -huh. right? Like our clinics are nuts. Like they're amazing. They're like what every doctor's dream. Like everything that you've ever wanted to get connected, he built it, but he built it from the ground up. Incredibly bright. He has a PhD in neuroengineering. He's a true hacker's hacker, but he, he also is a hustler, like he hustles really hard. I can put him in a meeting and he can hustle through the meeting. So he's not just a hacker, he's got some hustle in him. Um, and then, you know, and a hacker is just somebody that can build. A hustler is somebody that can just connect, make relationships uh, uh, and get things done. Uh, sorry, that's a hipster, sorry. The hipster is just somebody that can connect, make relationships, build network. Uh, you know, I'm very good at that. I've always been very good at that. Um, and so, you know, together I can go to a conference with Jeff and we can just like run the room and we know how to do it. And then the hustler is just somebody that can, 
just work like work from early early in the morning to the to late at night hilariously i don't consider myself a true hustler but i've become one right over the last few years and i think that the experience of uh being a caregiver for my dad and like seeing like where what he went through uh, like nobody should go with heart failure that's like one of the worst ways to go um and so um i think uh, there's a motivation to work really really hard and i don't know if i would work this hard for any other idea uh but together we are able to cover all three but i would say like hey if you have the ability and you know yourself um you've got to cover all those three i think there's you touched on this a little bit but there's a lot of difficulties in selling something new into a really traditional kind of industry. And maybe there's not even incentives for the players in the industry to change. How do you build a business case around that, that innovation? And how do you kind of push that? How did you kind of push that forward? what did you see that worked? Well, when we went to employers, they had a very clear problem. So their problem, their perfect problem, or the problem that they were trying to address is all of their employees end up in the emergency room. All of their employees go directly. They have they had to build PPOs because everybody wants choice, right? So everybody said, no, I'm not going to go to the primary care doctor. I'm going to go straight to the GI. And Muhammad just makes a ton of money, right? And, uh, and which is great. And um great for muhammad not so good for the health plan right and so people were just kind of going around the primary care doctor nobody's going to bring hmos nobody wants to bring hmos but they wanted to intercept that problem and by the way it's a false choice you wait 6 months to see a dermatologist you might as well see your primary care doctor right first and get the answer if there is an answer so it's a false choice of like oh i can just go direct and so what they wanted, what they, what every single employer in this country has already been made aware that primary care can solve their problems, right? So awareness-wise, every single one of them was like, I want a primary care solution. But because hybrid care is not scalable, very few of them had access to it. Only people in San Francisco and New York, wherever one medical was, or uh, you know, or or in the big cities could get access to it. But people in all the second, third tier markets could not get access to this. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. Oak Street Health has been around forever, okay, for a very long time, um, nearly, near, you know, a couple of decades, okay, um, and so has one medical. But Oak Street. Uh, they only have 132 clinics. Like think about how small that is in terms of like the whole country. Uh, only 132 clinics. For uh, of note, uh, as a as a VC, uh, they were valued at 10.6 billion dollars with 132 clinics. And so uh, we opened our second clinic in 15 days, right? And so it gives you a sense of like hybrid care is just not scalable. And so all of these employers know they want primary care. They're so desperate. They're so, so desperate, but that they can't get access to it. And so with Resilient, we were able to build a clinic right across the street from them in 15 days. And they were like, oh my God, let's go. I don't care if the doctor's on the screen. And th that was sort of, so, you know, my dad used to say, um, you know, what, what does somebody need when they're drowning? Oxygen, right? Like that's it. No life vest, no nothing else. And he's like, um, you know, what you should do uh, is find uh, people that are drowning and offer them oxygen and charge whatever the hell you want. Right. And, and, and that's really the, 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 the approach that we took. We looked in the market at who really, really wants this. They know they want this. They're absolutely drowning with 20, 30% premium increases every year. And then we were like, Hey, we're a new company. <laughs> We have nothing, no experience, the first customer. We have no experience, but I know you want it. And what do you have to lose? You're, you're literally spending 20% every year more. And they said, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, interesting. So you talk about that second clinic, 15 days from like, you know, start to building it out, finishing it and putting it into service. And scalability, when you're talking about innovation, is a huge thing. And we talked kind of about uh, interconnected tech network, that is your moat, and then um scaling it so it seems like you guys have kind of figured it out or are on the way to figuring it out if it took 15 days for the second clinic i'm sure the third clinic will be faster and the fourth will be faster and eventually you'll just get to a point where you're you know shipping these in a crate and like two days later they're up and running type situation um 
So how do you how do you maintain that balance, you know, between innovating and making sure your product still remains scalable and commercially viable? It's uh, they don't have to be that different. I think, you know, you just have to know what your North Star metrics are. For us, our North Star metric, which is the one metric the whole company, every single employee is judged by, um, is uh, ROI, return on investment for the for our customer. Um, and so, it, you know, you can choose a lot of different metrics, but it has to be a metric that scales with the company. And so, but also keeps you grounded. So if we end up, the ROI that we're generating for employers, right? Uh, the more employers we have, the more ROI we're generating. But if we're not generating as much ROI per employer, then that also suffers. So it kind of takes into account. You have to find the right North Star metric to guide your company. As far as scaling, we have to scale, right? And the beauty is that every new clinic we open, all of our doctors are available at that clinic, right? So scaling is not as hard. I don't have to hire local doctors. I don't have to hire, uh, you know, it's not as uh, as tight of a labor market for us. Uh, so, you know, and we can have 10 doctors seeing, you know, uh, be, you know, serving 20 clinics. I mean, it's a uh, crazy and just like kind of bouncing from one clinic to the other. So it's much easier to scale. I think you have to build it right the first time. That's unfortunate, but it's the truth. So, uh, you know, the darling in the room is still AI now, right? That's kind of what everyone's talking about. How do you see this impacting well, your guys' business model and just in general, the healthcare space? I actually tweeted about this today. I was, uh, um, until the source of truth in healthcare is the electronic medical record, AI will be a really good tool for administrators and a crappy tool for clinicians. And we think that you need a better data set. And we believe that that better data set is the actual interaction between the doctor and the patient. If you could see what actually happened in the room, for people that are not aware, uh, doctors say and do say things in the medical record that never happened, uh, just so that they can get paid. And that is the reality of it. It's not a judgment. Uh, every doctor has done it. Um, it's just the way that the paperwork works. And we're copying and pasting from other notes. So there's there's a lot of uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, BS in those notes. So those noise, notes are full of noise. Um, and so if you really want to know if you're using AI to train, if you're using that data set to train AI, you're really not getting the truth. Also, when how do you, you know, when you're looking at the medical record, you're often missing what actually happened, because if the doctor saw what actually happened, there would be less issues. Right. And so you're missing all this high fidelity data, um, auditory, visual data that's occurring in that interaction. So when you when you you know a large part of our value proposition and honestly it is driving valuation is that on the back end while we don't record the conversation between the doctor and the patient we do record device data that's streaming through resilient so your ear exam your heart exam your lung exam are being recorded on the back end and they're they're available to you so we're open so you can actually access your own medical record uh your visual medical record or your auditory medical record um and uh also we're using it to train our systems in the back end so that we can maybe catch the big tonsils or we can you know uh find additional information from the physical exam but in the interim we're also putting together data standards by the way there's no one's ever done this before so we have to come up with our own standards just crazy uh, so data standards around how we're going to put together all of this proprietary data right anybody that builds a new ai startup that's a wrapper on existing on some existing tool like GPT-4 or whatever, honestly, I don't know what they're building. Now, if they're solving a real problem, right, the perfect problem, and they start building these interconnected solutions, and AI is part of the solution for that first problem, but you have other solutions for the other problems, I'm sure that can be a real business. But what is really exciting is building a proprietary data set, right, that has never existed in the world before, and then opening it up to others to then build their companies on top. Like that's so why should we build the clinical decision support when somebody can build on our data? And right. now we have hundreds of thousands of hackers that are working on a data set that's never existed before. Yeah, I've had this this discussion more and more frequently recently, and I know we've had this discussion in the past, but 
I think the amount of people that are trying to get into this space of AI and healthcare and clinical decision support that don't fundamentally understand that the EMR was invented as a billing tool, not a yeah. medical documentation tool, yeah. um, is insane, right? And when I tell people, like, you know, like every physical exam has got to be 12 points, right? And you'll see people like constantly write, you know, complete 12 point ROS was done, right? And it's like, no, you didn't sit there and ask them about their lymph nodes or whatever, right? Whatever you put in the in that review of systems. There's always like, you know, 12 point, 14 point review of systems was done or, you know, whatever. Um, and I always laugh when I see that. Um, and that kind of goes to that garbage in, garbage out data. So it's going to be interesting to see um, obviously, you guys are doing that, and I think ambient. Yeah, hmm? yeah, there'll be some interesting use cases, admin related. Think of like medical coding, right. easy, right? Um, care coordination, boom, easy, right? These are non-medical but critically important parts of what we do. Uh, no generation, <laughs> the twelve point, right? right? Uh, that'll be easy. Um, so there are some things. I think this this question about data quality comes up so often, and I think what you're describing then, Danish, is kind of a, a paradigm shift. There's an incentive now to actually collect good data because you need it for your own specific tool. I think one of the most interesting things about this is that, in theory, it also reduces a layer of bias because anytime you ask someone to write something down, they're going to have their own filter that they put on it, whether it's for coding, whether it's for how the appearance would be. Basically, having access to unbiased data of what actually happened, I mean, that's that's a different tier. Um, and in industrial processes, we would say that's tier one data as far as training sets go. Um, are there other data sets out there that that you see that could be combined with yours that would be game changers? Is there a larger shift that's going to go in this direction where, you know, one plus one is greater than two. Yeah. I think, uh, the other big, big source of data that we are starting to explore a little bit is remote patient monitoring data. So, you know, because if you take the objective data from what, what's happening outside of the clinic and marry that with the objective data, you know, that we're collecting in the clinic, you essentially have a full objective data set of that patient throughout the time that you've been you've been caring for them. And that is incredibly powerful. Uh, so we think remote patient monitoring, you know, think of like wearables, especially high quality uh, wearables and taking that information and combining it with our physical exam data could be incredibly powerful. I think we had Matt Sakamoto, who you know as well, on on a while back, and we talked about kind of that user-generated or patient-generated data, whether it's coming from wearables or CGMs or scales or whatever it may be. Um, and he was really, really convinced that the value there, the value add there is going to be on like an analytics layer on top of it, right? It's like you have all this data, and now the real value is going to be how can we start correlating this with um, different health conditions or whatnot. Yeah, like what is the doctor going to do with looking at someone's heart rate over time? Like you don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. And I get be, that. Yeah, it's got to be sort of connected back to clinical decision making 100%. That's what AI is there for, right? AI can take that giant data set, combine it with, you know, a good example of this is with OpenAI, uh, with uh, GPT-4, you could send it a picture and say what's funny in this. Did you guys ever see that? That was a pretty interesting. You can actually take a photo, put it in GPT-4 and say, hey, what's funny in this photo? And I'll explain to you what's funny, right? Mm -hmm. And so by combining multiple modalities, they're looking at the same person, the same subject in multiple objective ways. It's like game changing. And then coming up with a summary of what the finding is, right? Uh, and if they miss the, if the AI misses something, you have, um, uh, uh, you know, reinforcement learning through human feedback, RLHF, that allows you to then say, hey, don't miss this next time, dummy. And they're like, oh, shoot. Yeah, like, let me make sure. And, you know, guess what? Unlike like half the people we work with in clinics and stuff, these people don't actually forget. Yeah. AI never forgets unless you ask it to. And right. so, you know, and so there's a, especially now that we have long-term memory. And so I think there's, there's a, a reckoning 
thing. That's for sure. We just need the right data. Okay. I'm going to rewind things a little bit, a lot bit. Um, I kind of go back. So you guys were a tech stars company. Yeah. With Resilient. You went through that process. And how was that for you guys as a company? What, what was valuable about it? And kind of would you recommend that process or any sort of accelerator to um, a founder in the future? You're going to make me say mean things. Uh, Techstars was great. I actually really like Techstars. But as far as accelerators in general, um, so one, unfortunately, if you have a really compelling company, you can end up in a place in an accelerator like YC or Techstars and not be in the right stage to do it. They're accelerators, right? So you have to have a spark already so they can accelerate the spark, right? Like that's sort of how I think about it. And there were other companies in our cohort that weren't as far along as we were in their product journey. And so they're spending their time in tech stars thinking about product development. That's not what you're supposed to be doing then. You're supposed to be talking to customers and supposed to be doing getting traction and build, you know, getting ready for demo day and talking to investors. Like it's a completely different stage. And so what I would say is timing is very critical. You need to know that you're ready. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I would never do an accelerator that's not YC or Techstars. And I know this is going to be very, very not nice. Uh, people are going to think I'm an ass for this, but it's okay. Uh, it's my opinion. Uh, and, you know, I don't think you're charging for this, so they're not paying anything for it. So they get what they pay for. But what I was going to say is that, you know, ultimately, Techstars was incredible because I met people like TJ Parker who built Pillback. You're, you're, you're meeting like these crazy people because they're all alums. It's the network that it brings you, the education that you get, mentor madness. Like, uh, I think they call it mentor magic now. I don't know, you can't say the word madness anymore, but mentor magic now. And um, in, 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 uh, in, in 10 days, you meet 50 like world-class people, like people that know your space better than you do. And you're, you're actually kind of in shock. Some of them are customers. Some of them are investors. Some of them are operators. And you, you literally just, they run through it. And it's quite serious. I would say choose the right tech stars. They're not, all of them are not created equal. Uh, YC doesn't work for healthcare. Very few healthcare companies have come out of YC and won. Uh, and if you look at the ones that have won, they're often not care delivery companies. Uh, they tend to be much more, um, you know, companies that work on the business side of healthcare. And so RCM, uh, eligibility check, eligibles came from there, great company. Um, there's, there's, there's a few. Whereas in healthcare, I would say Techstars has a ton of big name companies. Uh, hopefully we're going to be one of them as well. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a few of them. You, you touched on this you touched on this a little bit I think one of the big value adds is maybe the network can you talk a little bit about partnerships and how they played an important role in the growth of your company and did sort of the accelerator space spark that or were there other avenues that you went through as far as building up partnerships and relationships going through Techstars made partnerships easier because people know Techstars. Um, we also went through the one with Melinda Gates French and Pivotal Ventures. And so they know everybody. Uh, and so they made a bunch of intros and that made a big difference to so the sponsor of the Techstar. So Techstar is set up. So there's a sponsoring organization, whichever one is the sponsoring organization should either be an investor, a potential investor, potential customer, or, you know, someone who just has the craziest network. We actually got lucky to go after the one that has the craziest network uh, because they can connect you to both customers and invest investors. It's like a sort of a cop out answer. Would you rather have customers or investors? It's like, I'd rather have both. And it's like, yeah, that's what we got. So, um, so yes, it did spark it. I think partnerships depend on your stage and your distribution model. So if your go-to-market strategy is using channel partners, there's nobody better than a Techstars or, or a YC. I will say, if your target ideal customer profile is other startups, go to YC. Don't even waste your time with Techstars. Just go directly to YC, do not pass go. That, that, is, the, that is the place to go. And I, I know my Techstars family is gonna be like, what are you talking about? It's like, no, if you're selling to startups, you should go to YC because 
essentially every YC company uses every other YC company's uh, uh, product. And so you, and at least some of them will become big companies. And so you essentially are guaranteeing success. But yes, partnerships work. They really help. They're much better than chasing one mound hill at a time. So you have a bit of a bit of a finance background too, you know, like Wharton, etc. Um, so I'll pick your brain a little bit on this. Recently, we've seen, uh, I don't want to get like into naming too many names, but lots of uh, very highly funded health tech startups like pair etc like essentially get auctioned off for parts right like you know yeah well going from 400 million 500 million dollar valuations to like you know 20 million dollars in pieces right um what what gap do you think there is on the vc side because they're, they're the vc guys are they're not idiots for the most part you know a lot they're they have some knowledge and they obviously have some track record like a lot of these companies were funded by like tier one vcs you know huge track records of success. Um, how are they kind of falling into these traps where I think like a lot of these, if you had went to someone back then, if I went to you and went like, Hey, what do you think about this idea five years ago? Right. You'd have been like, Oh, it's never going to work. Right. And you know, obviously hindsight's 2020, but where do you see that gap on the VC side? I think VCs. So especially in health tech, I think VCs got ahead of their skis when it came to virtual care, whether it was digital therapeutics or telehealth or telehealth adjacent, there was a bunch of people that were like, oh, telehealth is here to stay. Uh, you know, they could have talked to a few doctors and realized very quickly that telehealth and Zooming your doctor is just not enough or texting your doctor is just not enough or even digital therapeutics are just not enough. It's just you need sort of this omni-channel approach. And so now everybody's on the same page. Hybrid is the future. Uh, so that kind of scares me because everybody now agrees on something, which automatically tells me that there's something that they're missing. Uh, but, you know, what happened during 2021 and maybe even early 2022 is, is this real big issue that does that happened across all of tech, but really affects health tech the most. There was deals chasing deals, and that attitude has led to the most disruptive time in VC ever. A bunch of bunch of founders got early liquidity events. A bunch of founders started raising like crazy valuations, and everybody thought the the music would never stop. Right, so not not realizing that the music always stops, it never goes on forever, was part of the problem. But it was even worse in healthcare because, you know, it's great to move fast and break things, but you also have to first do no harm. And you have to sort of toe the line between the two. And when the music stopped, right? And let's say you've been focusing on first do no harm, and you haven't gotten to the move fast break things, meaning like you're not like just really, really growing, you can die. And if you were just moving fast and breaking things like Cerebral and others, that's a, that's one that's been in the public. So right. Cerebral and others, they just move fast, right? right? Venture capital was the culprit. It wasn't just the leadership. The founders obviously were culprits as well. And so were all of the people that were involved. But the, the venture capital really fueled the fire Right. And um, and so they forgot about the first do no harm part. And so what's happened is that the dust is settling. The companies that are both moving fast and breaking things and not doing harm just are they, they, they have an open field day on on everything. But it's good. This is all good. Trust me. This is like this is very, very, very good for the industry. Mohammed, you don't know how many companies I saw that I was like, how are they getting funded? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, we've had this conversation, right? There, These companies are popping up like every day, right? And all of a sudden you you see, you know, headlines, Crunchbase or Pitchbook or something. It's like so-and-so raised $50 million at $400 million valuation. And the people on it are going to be, they're like massive corporate venture funds. And then you have like the large Sand Hill Road guys, East Coast guys, whatever. You look at it and you're like, well, how is this getting money, right? Like whatever. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll go I'll go with this argument. Um, so we talked about, you know, uh, with Cerebral and I know that was like the whole 
Adderall pill mill situation. And then there's going to be, I'm pretty sure the Ozempic, like GLP-1 pill mill situation that's brewing right now. Um, that's going to come to a head at some point. And then, you know, but Theranos was, that was almost a decade ago, right? Like that whole investment. So I was like, you could go back to probably what, 2010, maybe a little bit before that. Like they haven't learned their lesson, right? They're making the same mistakes over and over again. So how do you fix that? Or how do you change that? Well, Theranos was a different mistake. They're making different mistakes in my opinion. Theranos was the lack of diligence. Right. Whereas Cerebral was not a lack of diligence. It was apathy. They didn't care what they were doing to people. I mean, I think you could argue both of them were just a lack of understanding the space. Um, I would say Cerebral, the people on Cerebral really understood the space, like really understood it, but they didn't care what they were doing. There is no way that they did this blindly. Come on, man. No, no, I don't. I don't think they. I don't think they did that. Did it blindly. I'm not going to defend what they did. I think they were. That was a very awful, awful situation. And my, my argument on Cerebral would be that I think the the funds that invest. So I think the company versus the funds investing in the company. Right. So I think the funds that invested in the company trusted that the people that are running this company understand the space, which they obviously did from. A certain component of the space, but I would argue that in it's fundamentally it's a psychiatry neuropsych space. Um, I would argue that the patient outcomes or what they're doing to people is part of understanding the medical component of the space, right? So if you went to a psychiatrist off the street, you know wherever, let's say you're a I don't know LA based fund, right? And you walk into UCLA and you go to a psychiatrist and you're like, hey, I want to invest in this company to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to write X hundred million prescriptions for Adderall, right? They would tell you it's a bad idea, right? Like, I'm not asking you to go to some, like, big name expert or something. I, mean, I think it's a – so where where do you see that lack Actually, of – Actually, if you went to the big name expert, that big name expert would say, oh, it's a great idea. This is the problem, actually. This What you just said is the bigger problem, is that they keep going to these forward-thinking, futurist medical experts who have made an entire living saying provocative things, Right. Right. But what they should be doing is going to your regular doctor that has a shingle up, not for actual decision making, but for feedback, because they'll tell you every way from Sunday that it's not going to work out. Right. Right. Because they're actually practicing day to day. I don't practice anymore. I would not ask me for medical like, hey, would this work? What I would do, if you ask me, I would say, hey, go talk to uh, Leo, who's our medical director. He does it every single day. Go ask some of our doctors that work at Resilient, and they'll tell you, like, what's what. Um, and and so, you know, this is – well, you're, you actually kind of stumbled onto the big problem right now, which is no one's asking the doctors at the front line. They're, ta- they're asking all of these futurists, like, uh, you know, and I'm not going to name anybody, but, you know. Right. And by the way, all the funds are talking to all the same freaking futurists. Right. They're talking to the same four people who are creating this echo chamber and they're all investing. And all of these people get brought on by these companies as advisors, get equity, and it creates this whole loop, right? There's a fundamental incentive misalignment, though. And, you know, as a, as a VC, I think it's also one of the most important things that you could do, but also one of the hardest is to go seek information goes against what you actually want to do, which is typically to invest in a company you believe is going to be huge, actively seeking that information from a group that I think has generally been harder to access in the past as far as getting casual advice about whatever it is. I I mean, I could definitely see where that disconnect comes from. And it's not right, but at the same time, I mean, you could totally see not going out of your way to be told that what you're trying to do isn't going to work. Imagine building a dev tool and not talking to developers. That's how I think about it. That's what's been going on. And it's not about talking to the world's best developers. Like, that's not the point. Talk to like your regular, you know, developer, you know, she's working like crazy hours trying to get shit done. Like that's the person they need to be talking to. And I bet you that, uh, yes, doctors have not been accessible, but just schedule an appointment with your primary care doctor and just ask the freaking question, right? Like VCs VC that all have concierge doctors, maybe they don't know what it feels like anymore. But uh, but you know, for the rest of us, 
peasants. I think I think it's 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 helpful to get some feedback. And I actually think that when you look at the best VCs, the like so, um, I, I just met recently a really really well known VC, um, like very well known, and I kid you not, that VC decided to not invest in any telehealth companies during COVID. People, including uh, their LPs their actual investors in the VC funds were like, why aren't you making any moves in the space? And the, his answer was COVID will end. <laughs> that was his answer. And they were like, but you know, but behavior changes happen. And he's like, nah, it happens so quickly. It can go away just as quickly. I don't want to bet in this, but you know what he did bet on? Uh, revenue cycle management. He did bet on the things that he knew were going to be around. Um, and so, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, and he's a very famous VC. And so, you know, it's very interesting that the best VCs were just like, that they, they were going back to first principles. And he literally said, he's like, you know, I, I talked to a few doctors, tried to understand, is this really a behavioral change or is this just something they have to do? And do they, and, you know, initially when he had conversations, he said, Oh, telehealth is great. All the doctors like telehealth is great. By the way, the doctors, their practices were closed. They had to say telehealth is great. Like that was the other big problem. There was like a false flag. And so then he was like, okay, but like once we return back to in person, would you still use it? Well, we'll have to do like partially all of this stuff. And then before you know it, it was, that was it. And he made the decision that he was never going to invest in one of those. So I think that it, it, the good VCs are out there. You just have to search for the right ones. They're doing the diligence. Also, one other thing about Theranos that I do want to add is that there were actually no major VCs on their cap table, unlike their board. It was like a bunch of high, ultra high net worth individuals. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, you kind of unknowingly brought up a topic that um, Graham, Graham talked to me about this a long time ago. So MD Calc, one of their revenue streams is through advertisers, right? And yeah. when they look at their statistics, the number of doctors that use their app or their website on a regular basis, the numbers are pretty unreal, right? And he was like, you know, we often had these marketing firms or these advertisers that would come to us and we would show them our stats and they'd be like, there's no way I don't believe this. And his argument, his response would be, next time you go see your doctor, ask them if they've ever used MD calc, right? And that, and I think if you're a startup that's in this space seeking funding and you go up to a venture capitalist or you go to a firm and the firm asks you, prove to me if doctors are going to use this or if this is a good idea or medically sound. I think you should just be able to say, like, go ask your doctor. They're going to confirm it, right? And I think that's the basic level of due diligence as a firm you should have done is at least talk to someone. Yeah, it's crazy. It's nuts. And again, you know, we also just to remind everybody, 2021, 2022, we had a lot of tourists that came into the space, right? So, uh, you know, people people just came in out of left field. They've never done a healthcare deal before. And they were coming in at like pre-seed and seed, which is like where you actually do need some level of understanding. It's it's one thing to go and help a company grow all the way, but it's another to, to really focus super early stage and be able to pick out the winners. I think... Um... We're getting close to an hour, so we'll end soon. But I know Hyder had a had a question about the whole XPRIZE experience. I'm going to let him kind of ask that, and then I think we'll wrap up on that. It was all right. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 first of all, congratulations on that. Super awesome. I'd just love to know about the process. Is it something that you would try and get other people to pursue if they could? And then I'm also just curious about, in general, benefits of non-dilutive non-dilutive capital at that sort of stage of the company? XPRIZE was great. It helped us hone in our tech. The money was great. We were a finalist, which is awesome, uh, in the Robot Avatar XPRIZE. I think the, the, the biggest benefit was the community that they provide. It's really helpful and the competitors that you find, uh, some of whom are academics. And so as soon as the students graduate, you can try to hire them, things like that. So it's a pretty cool opportunity. Um, would I recommend it? Absolutely. If it's a good fit, non-dilutive funding is a great way to go. One of the biggest challenges with non-dilutive funding is time. It takes for, there are very few non-dilutive funding sources that don't take forever to get. 
if you can get access to non-dilutive funding that doesn't take six months to a year to get access to, you should 100% go after it. Also, um, depending on your stage, you could also go after SBIR funding and other types of funding from the from the government. There's many, many sources. Interestingly, I actually think that there's a, like in a very, very, very early stage of the company, I wouldn't recommend going after any of this. I would focus on talking to your customers. I would focus on uh, funding yourself through revenue um, and maybe pre-seed or family and friend, friends and family if you have that. Um, but once you get to like sort of a middle stage, so you're post MVB, but pre-product market fit, those non-dilutive funding sources can be helpful. But interestingly, grant funding is super doable once you're bigger. Right. But you don't want to be too big because then you get cut out for some of them. But once you're, you know, once you're generating a few million in ARR, oh, man, you can like hire somebody and all they do is just write grants all day, just all day, just pumping out grants. And uh, they, they identify good grants, they submit those grants. And if that person can close one grant a year, even if you're paying them 100K, right, if that grants a mill, very few grants are left in a mill. Um, they pay for themselves and 10x, right? And so there, there's a lot of benefits of hiring somebody like that. Also, when you're writing all these grants, sometimes you, you can figure out your narratives better. A lot of that information can be used for due diligence with investors. So there's a lot of benefits with that. Um, but uh, just don't become one of those grant farms. There's a lot of companies that just keep pumping out grants but don't actually build the product. Uh, and that's the worst. That sounds like hell to me. That sounds like, uh, yeah, Groundhog Day or hell. Awesome, man. Thanks. Thanks for being on. I think it's a great, great conversation. I, I should learn to talk. I always learn it on talking to Danish. I'm sure I had her pick some info up. Oh, so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Danish. All right. Thanks, guys. Yes, that was an awesome, awesome episode. We uh, had a great discussion with Danish. I think one. We're aiming for 40, 45 minutes. I think we hit an hour there, but I think it was very valuable. He His stories just had so much, so much to them. I learned a ton. Uh, I hope everyone listening did as well. Uh, yeah, really great, really great conversation. So what was your... Jump, uh, yeah. yeah, we oh. wanted to jump into kind of our, our takeaways from the conversation. And, you know, the first thing I wanted to touch on was how much he, re- he reiterated the power of partnerships and... It actually, what Danish was saying was that it was the main benefit of both Techstars and XPRIZE, which just completely, that is completely unexpected for me. Um, I mean, what did you think? I would have assumed that like the funding or some other piece of that would have emerged as more important. Yeah, I mean, I think he he kind of talked about it as that like cop-out answer, right? If you ask, what would you have more investors or customers? And his answer was, I'd, I'd have both of them. And um, I think that just goes into the value of those partnerships. If you make the right partnerships, your partners will become your customers and they'll become your investors or they'll introduce you to the right investors. So, yeah, I wasn't surprised um, that he he was so so passionate about the value of that. I was surprised, though, that he thought both that was what they got the most out of both XPRIZE and Techstars. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing you mentioned about the accelerator and Techstars in particular, I, I guess not even Techstars in particular, but timing it right, getting the, the company to the right stage before you join something like that. And I think all in service to maximizing the value of the partnerships that you make. If your head's down in product, you're just not going to have time to, to look around, meet people and make those connections that you that you might need to, to really grow. Yeah, I think the... Other point that was very interesting was when he got into the the ideal founding team and he kind of went through that hacker, hipster, hustler um, paradigm. And I think that just builds off that importance of partnership, right? The uh, importance of having someone that can build that network, nurture it and develop it um, in the hipster and then the rest of the pieces, obviously. So what do you think? Thank you for asking that question. I was so curious. I don't know. When you look at Danish's background, you're like, well, he could just do everything himself. He's, you know, he's got the electrical engineering background. He's got the the business background. He's got the medical background. The way that he talked about his co-founders was amazing. And I think this, 
idea of having not just different skill sets, but different personalities and work ethic styles and just the way that people go around how they approach work. Uh, super, super important. I think it was a really great point. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was that was awesome. And I think the, the last point, which was uh, really interesting, was his initial customer, his initial target market for his uh, product for Resilient was health system. And he talked about how initially he started off by pursuing them and all the health systems were like, this was a great idea, you should build it. And then he realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a viable route to commercialization for him, right? He was able to pivot that market, maintain the idea, but he was able to find the right yeah. market, right? And that ended up being employers and insurers. And I think we just talked about that um, last episode with Matt was right. There's all these other big players in the healthcare space that have huge checkbooks that aren't health systems. I know health systems are the big sexy, but there's way more, way more hanging around. Yeah, and I, I love that he pivoted his market rather than his product. That's a different way to think about a pivot. Um, you might have the product correct. You might not be selling it to the right person. And I, I think the idea that that he stuck with it and had belief in the product and knew that it brought value, and he went out and found the exact right group of people that absolutely needed it, That's that was really powerful. Um, really awesome to hear. All right. Awesome, everyone. Thanks for thanks for listening to this week's uh, episode of Decipher Health Tech. We'll be back probably in another two weeks or so, trying to aim aim for every two weeks. Uh, you can go to our website, decipherhealthtech.com. All our links to social media, everything is out there, and we'll be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.